welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast series. I'm Nina Lockwood, founder and director of Intuitive Interim and Executive Search. Throughout this series, I will be sharing engaging conversations with talented leaders from across the UK transport sector. Today, I'm delighted to welcome David Simpson, Service Delivery Director for ScotRail to the Intuitive Insights podcast. David takes us on his career journey from a kiosk on the seafront in Dorset to a career through a career spanning literally every element of UK railway to today's role as service delivery director in Scotland. I knew some of this story, but not all of it. And I have absolutely loved hearing about David's journey. And by the way, do listen right to the end because he shares some wonderful words of wisdom. Enjoy. David Simpson, Service Delivery Director for ScotRail, a very, very warm welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast. Thank you've you. Been, you know, you've been such a massive supporter of the podcast and of me, actually, personally. You, you've got this wonderful habit of sending me a little email or a message every now and again to say you've read an article or you've seen a podcast and it matters hugely. So thank you for that. I am delighted I finally got you in the in the hot seat for the podcast. And it's not so hot. It's kind of nice and warm and cosy, isn't it? Um, so we're going to start in a traditional format for this podcast. Our audience love to hear the career stories of our guests that appear. So I'm going to ask you to take us back to the very beginning um, in terms of career choice how have you got to the position you are today, where you've been, what you've done, um, and, a, and then a little bit around what does the service di- delivery director for ScotRail do on a day-by-day basis? Thanks, Nina. It feels a bit like no bad to ancient history, but uh, <laughs> we'll start and see where we get to. Um, so my first job in transport was actually before uh, starting full-time. Uh, although I'm from Scotland originally, I grew up down in Dorset. Um, and I got a summer holiday job working for Southern National Buses um, for a couple of summers. And this was selling the coach tours, the mystery trips went out around Dorset to go and visit sites and so on and so forth. And that was absolutely fascinating because it was my first kind of encounter with people. And when I say people, I mean the great British public who bought the coach tickets and had to be cajoled to buy them and come back and enjoy the trip. But also the people who worked in the bus company. Um, and we had three three coaches to fill every day. We had three drivers who worked these full time. And those drivers were three very, very different personalities. Um, and my role was to sit in the inquiry office in the seafront and invite people in, sell the tickets and sell the tours to them. And then engage with the drivers to make sure that they gave the, the kind of what people were buying. So a mystery tour had to go somewhere interesting and mysterious. Right. The drivers, one was a union rep. He was quite, quite kind of... Um, stuck in his ways. One was brand new to the role and one had done it for donkey's years since the kind of 1940s. Uh, this was sort of mid-80s I'm talking right. about here, so yeah. I, I kind of real link with the past. And I found it fascinating both seeing the different types of people who ran the business um, and the other drivers who drove the local buses and so forth, the kind of the logistics album that went that went into delivering that and you know bringing in revenue and what made customers happy, what didn't. Um, and also the, the kind of wider dealing with the public and, you know, what, what what you could do to make them want to go out on a tour for three or four hours of an evening or a day or whatever and enjoy right. that. And that, that whole that whole kind of people 
interface, be it staff, be it customers, was really, really fascinating. So I did that for two years. And when I came to leave university, I had the choice of, I had a few choices, but the two main ones were to get into the National Bus Company uh, graduate scheme or the British Rail Training Scheme. Um, and, you know, both of those held great interest. And it wasn't quite the toss of a coin because the, the process to get to BR seemed a bit more professional. The opportunity seemed a bit um, a bit more open. And at that point, buses were, out, were about to be deregulated in 1986. Right. And so that the prospects in bus seemed a bit less secure than they did in rail. So I joined the BR training scheme in 1986, um, along with some fellow alumni who are still about in the industry, right. um, one or two of whom are shortly to retire. So that ages it as well, doesn't it? <laughs> doesn't I was it. Um, attached to the St Pancras area, which was run by Adrian Shooter, who, of course, sadly left us uh, last year. Um, and Adrian was was quite unusual because he was an engineer who'd been placed into an operational role as an area manager. Uh, the route was St Pancras out to Bedford. It had just been modernised. We driver-only trains, electrification, new signalling. And that actually drove some very, very high standards. Um, and Adrian had a real focus on what customers wanted and how to deliver that. Um, which has kind of stayed with me throughout my career, actually, because he, he he was very clear initially what he wanted and what role everyone played in delivering that. Um, this was also uh, just after Network South East had been launched as a new brand. Uh, so Chris Green had come down from Scotland. Um, he'd kind of uh, developed the NSC brand. So we were just in the very early stages of that. And it was quite exciting seeing the trains appear in a new colour scheme, the red lampposts go up everywhere. That, that gave a few Sunday overtime shifts. Uh, painting lampposts, if I'm honest, and station signs. It was uh, great opportunities. Um, so I was a trainee for a year at St Pancras, and then I was appointed to be station manager at Bedford um, at the age of 21. And in that role, today there'd be about four different companies doing what I was res responsible for. Uh, but in that role, we had stations, we had ticket offices, we had a car cleaning depot, we had train crew, uh, we did instant response to, 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 to what was on the line and all that. So it was a real um, rounded appreciation of how a railway runs, um, all the different colleagues who were involved in that, both locally and further afield. Um, and what I got most from that was, I guess, this real sense of ownership that Bedford Station was mine. Uh, the local stations up and down that line, we covered Luton to Bedford, uh, we owned. Um, and I think everyone took a real pride at that time mm -hmm. in delivering a really good service um, on that line. Um, that period also coincided with the Thameslink service being introduced. So when I started, we just ran to St Pancras and Moorgate, uh, and then we ran through the Thameslink tunnel to the southern region uh, when I was there. So it was at the very early stages of that. And saw the benefits that that real connectivity gave, you know, both to that line and further afield. You could go to Brighton for a day out without changing the London, for example, and you could see passengers responding really well to that. Yeah. Um, the other kind of feature there was this network, network southeast push on standards. So cleaning trains every day, cleaning the interior, doing the heavy cleans, the station cleans, uh, the ticket selling, the capital card came in where you could buy a ticket for all modes in London. Some really, really good initiatives to get people back to use rail uh, away from the traditional peak commuter base um, and kind of draw the market. So you know, one of the things I used to have to do in the car park was go and clamp cars who'd parked illegally. 
um, because uh, car park capacity was limited. So here I was as a kind of a fairly young manager going out and clamping cars and negotiating with customers to get the cars out and all that. It was a real, um, you know, deep dive into people yeah. and all their kind of different yeah. shapes. Turning that's it. Turn it. Turning your hand to absolutely anything. Yeah, I'm smiling yeah. here, thinking, you know, when people think about a career on the railway. I quite often, certainly like in my, my daughter's peer group in the, you know, their early 20s, I'll suggest looking at the railway for a career. And I generally will be met with, well, I don't want to be a train driver. Yeah. And yeah. I, my, my response always is, well, there's so much more to it than that. But I have to say, clamping and lamppost painting have not been on my list of things that I've offered as an opportunity, so I think I need no. to sharpen, sharpen my hand up a bit there, David. No. I didn't know about they, that. They were highlights that stuck in my head for some reason. <laughs> but I think the, the point of, of saying all that is you were given some really big responsibility very early on. And, yeah, you were closely watched with lots of support, you know, lots of advice given. I had an oppo at Luton who was a, a very experienced colleague called John Spellman who'd been around for 30, 40 years at that point. So I think we were quite a good balance there. Yeah. Uh, in terms of uh, you know ma making sure things that things work well, so I spent a couple of years in that role. Then went off to something totally different in the East Midlands, managing freight depots. Um, and this was around Nottinghamshire, Derbyshire. Uh, this was not long after the miners' strike, and that presented a whole new set of interesting you know challenges because we still had depots where some drivers drove trains during the strike, others didn't. Uh, mm -hmm. That led to segregation. There were some really deep-rooted um, wounds, if you like, from that. And so that that was another interesting yeah. kind of experience, trying to make sure depots ran well with that that kind of history to them. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just the depots, it was the towns and the villages where there was this kind of divide between those who'd worked, those hadn't. Uh, freight in itself was fascinating because unlike the passenger service, which was you know regular, routine, predictable, uh, the freight timetable changed every week. It depended upon what was coming out of the coal mines and what the power stations wanted. So every week we had a new train plan uh, right. to design and plan and resource and a very different set of challenges. And that took me around some very, um, the highways and byways of the Nottinghamshire collieries. Um, I've still got the old Orton right. survey map that I had at the time that I drove about following with all the little mines and access points and roadways right. uh, marked top marked top on it, showed me where to go and all that, so it didn't get lost. But uh, yeah. that 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 became a fascinating year, um, and it was a year of the the business was contracting, uh, a lot of the mines were closing, uh, the tonnage was reducing, so it was a little bit of contraction um, and trying to adapt to the kind of world that mining was in. Uh, after the, uh, the the early minor strike, this really strikes me again, and the, there is obviously there's a theme emerging here in terms of engaging and managing stakeholder relationships, and mm. recognizing from really early on when you're in the kiosk on the seafront that that there's a different way of working with the general public at large, yeah. but also, and, and I found this really interesting, that you'd recognise that the bus drivers were all very different as well. So we treat that relationship differently depending on the personality of the person we're dealing with. I can only begin to imagine, and, and only because I've watched films and documentaries about what happened during two communities during the miners' strike, and that segregation of, as you said, of towns and villages, as well as actual depots. 
must have been really, really challenging to work in that kind of environment. And was was it just a given, David, that that's what we, we are segregated? That's how we work, or were, was there kind of a collective effort to try and change it at this point, or was it kind of no, it's too soon. We're just going to leave it as is. I think a bit of both, Nina. I think it was a given. It was so much wider than just the train drivers, um, but there, there was there was such almost a tribalism yeah. in terms of how it felt. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the, the mesh rooms were, were literally physically segregated and never the twain shall meet. And, it, you know, it, it was more more obvious at some depots than others, but that made it very difficult for the, you know, the train crew supervisors, for example, who kind of mm. resourced the service and run the service. If there was a gap caused by driver A, um, then getting driver B to cover that gap, if driver A had been a you know, somebody who'd worked in the dispute and driver B wasn't, yeah. created you know, lots more difficulties than would have been wow. the case otherwise. So again, watching how some very experienced operating colleagues managed that mm. and tried to get out of people what they needed, but recognising those, you know, very, very kind of deep-rooted entities, well, it was quite an education. I, um, I wouldn't yeah. pretend I get anywhere near trying to sort any of that because it yeah. was it was much bigger than you know the role I was in at the time and, and yeah. those three depots. But it, it, it taught me quite a lot yeah. uh, in terms of you know the, the kind of the challenges that, that managing people can bring for all yeah. sorts of reasons beyond the jobs they're doing at the time. Mm. So absolutely, yeah. So I, I went from that role to something totally different again. Uh, which was at that point, BR were, were going quite hard on total quality management. So I joined that team for a year or so as a quality facilitator. Um, and that was about bringing people together to work in quality improvement projects um, to find you know, resolutions for them using the, the kind of um, the total quality management process improvement type techniques. Yeah. Um, so part of that was, was running facilitation sessions and, and briefing um, groups of leaders and supervisors on these techniques and again being relatively young at the time so probably mid-20s by then and being in rooms full of very experienced colleagues um, who'd been there done that for many years was actually quite a challenge and yeah. you know trying trying to win them over to, to kind of listen and, and you know maybe understand that one or two things you were you were talking about might be some use in their day-to-day -day, your roles and all well, no, that was quite interesting um, so I did that for a year, um, then moved back out into uh, performance-type roles, um, as, as most of my era did, spent time in, in a couple of train op you know, the, the train operating units, as they then, they, they then were, prior to privatisation. Um, I then um, got seconded again to a signalling restructuring project. Uh, this was an, was an HQ project looking at completely redoing signalers' terms and conditions, which had been unchanged since the year dot, you know, for 100 years in some cases. So yeah. I ended up project managing that project through the transition to rail track in, in the early 90s and finding myself as a result in rail track. And that was my first major exposure to trade unions at a kind of senior level because we had yeah. to, uh, this, this resulted in some national rail strikes through 1994, um, which were, were, you know, quite damaging to the industry. Um, and watching how the new rail track senior management managed that on the HR side, on the ER side, on the operational side, uh, was absolutely fascinating. Uh, we got a deal in the end, 
Uh, that deal remains in place now, what, 25, 30 years later, I'm pleased right. to say, yeah. uh, largely unchanged. Um, and the role then became implementing the deal across the then uh, rail track zones, uh, as they were called at the time, um, yeah. and making sure that each zone uh, picked up the, the SRI single restructuring initiative proposal and implemented it as, as effectively as possible. Um, so we did some training, there was some different job evaluation as part of that, um, and moved it on. Um, so that was probably about three years worth. It, it lasted far longer than that initial secondment as a kind of ops advisor had, um, yeah. had been expected. And as I say, that gave some real exposure to lots of senior people um, yeah. in rail track at the time. Yeah. Um, this is well before rail track uh, went bust. Um, it was still, you know, it was brand new at that point, quite young. And John Ellis was the uh, head of operations, right. uh, the kind of ops lead. And jo John was an absolutely inspirational person to work for. And of course, still is around the industry today in, in Railway Heritage Trust form and so forth. Um, so back out into, into the field, uh, a couple of jobs in freight, at mainline freight, that became EWS. Um, EWS had a reorganisation. I, I was a regional ops manager at Wembley at the time. Uh, looking after West Coast South for freight. I then took the leap in back into rail track, actually, to East Anglia Zone um, in 1998 uh, as the um, performance manager. And I spent four years in Anglia, and it was a brilliant four years. Um, Anglia had a real kind of um, community feel to it. It was the smallest zone. Um, East Anglia is, 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 you know, quite separate to the rest of the network. Um, and it, we were based at Liverpool Street, but it felt like we were a million miles from, from central London. Right. And we ran a really diverse network. We ran some really busy London commuter lines, ran the line out to Southend, but then also some of the Norfolk branches, uh, you know, up, up in the really rural bits there. I moved into commercial management there, um, and I became business manager for West Anglia. Um, and that role was aimed, it was a new role that the, uh, ZD, Ray Price had created, zone director. Right. And bringing together all the different functions who ran the business um, to focus on the customer. So I was also the account manager for West Anglia Great Northern Talk and the LTS Talk that then became C2C over that period. Mm -hmm. And we tried to bring together all the different delivery bits of the organisation uh, to really focus in on what the customer wanted, be it the train operating units, be it Stansted Airport, which was a big customer in the route, the, the airport yeah. station was in place there and uh, they were growing quite rapidly um, and they wanted to know how we could help them with their business by getting more passengers to the airport by okay. rail. Um, so again, that was a fascinating four years in Anglia and that, that really opened my eyes to some of the more commercial um, aspects of the industry and how that all worked and particularly relationships between rail track and train operating companies and how they could be nurtured and developed. And right. the way we did that, I kind of saw myself as the presence of rail tracks and the train operating companies. So I used to go along to some of their um, talk team meetings, some of their management meetings and so forth, uh, just to be rail track and give some kind of feel that we were interested in and want to do yeah. uh, the best for those, um, which, which was quite enjoyable. And in Anglia, it felt like a real community railway. Like community field, yeah. Street. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I then moved across to work for Dick Fern on Midlands Zone um, right. on West Coast South. Um, and I spent three years at West Coast South, which is probably one of the most both challenging but enjoyable 
times in my whole career. So the role I went to was executive West Coast South and it became general manager West Coast South. It was basically, in a nutshell, keep the trains running while West Coast Route Mod dug up the tracks. Right. Um, oh, God. This was the yeah, point where, uh, yeah, this was the opposite of HS2. This was re renewing the West Coast main line, Europe's busiest mixed traffic railway, files, yeah. you know, open heart surgery type of stuff. Um, so Virgin with the, and Silverlink were the two main passenger operators. We had all the, the freight um, operators as well. Chris Green had arrived at that point as the Virgin CEO. And you, I know you know Chris very well, was very demanding in terms of what he expected from, from us in Network Rail. Yeah. And my job really was to try and get the project team, which by that point was being run by Bechtel, um, the kind of third party. Yeah. And our kind of day-to-day -day, uh, priorities aligned to the degree where Bechtel could deliver what they want. Virgin could get the Pendolinos into service and up and running, and we could keep the railway running on the day job as well as possible, while all this massive work went on around us. Okay. So it was a role that really, really demanded huge reserves of tact and diplomacy to try to get these different competing um, priorities yeah. kind of aligned in a way that, 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 that delivered for all the, all the kind of stakeholders. Huge, isn't it? It's absolutely huge. As you say, it's because it's the busiest railway. Yeah. It's been done whilst the railway is still in operation. And all of those different stakeholders to keep yeah. happy during the process. So it's not just kind of you, you, the owning groups or the, the railway side of things. It's the general public and then presumably some politicians who are represented up and down the route and all of that good yeah. stuff as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm going. I'm going to actually drop a plug in here for um for a new podcast that Nigel Harris has started. Now I haven't listened to episode three yet, but it is about the West Coast yeah. upgrade. So I don't know whether you've tuned into that or not. I have tuned into it. Yeah, yeah it? right. Good. So yeah, yeah it's. Uh, <laughs> I haven't listened to it yet. I am going to listen to it. So um so yes, if anyone's particularly um interested in or fascinated by the west coast uh upgrows then uh, green signals is nigel's yeah. new podcast so uh, yeah well funnily enough it's funny you, you should mention that name nina because our, our our stated objective on west coast south was to give the operators green signals oh, um we wanted we to go. offer a sea of green and amongst right. all this work and there was this was the sra were about at the time and richard bowker does a podcast with nigel that was obviously yeah. uh, leading that but one of the jobs i had was to go along to the the, the kind of high-powered SRA meetings report on day-to-day -day performance and what was going well, what wasn't. And again, that, that opened my eyes to some very, if not the most senior people in the industry at the time yeah. um, and how, how that all operated. Um, and of course, that coincided with RailTrack becoming Network Rail 2. Mm. Um, so it was a really interesting time to be around um, at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we got the Pendolinos in. I remember the record-breaking run from Houston to Manchester and back which broke the speed records, yeah. um, all the fanfare when the then PM Tony Blair turned up to launch it. So there were some really good celebrating moments yeah. uh, and amongst all the all the day-to-day -day challenges um, that were going on. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the railway, it's always fascinating up and down the West Coast mainline today and location, some of the sites, some of the junctions, some of the kind of big changes yeah. uh, that took place during that period. And, of course, Pendolino is still going strong uh, 20 or so years later yeah so, absolutely and what yeah, a, yeah. yeah what a kind of when you look back over your career that has to stand out as one of the 
kind of, as you've said, the most challenging, but the most enjoyable, I would imagine also from a leaving a legacy perspective, because you've been involved in something which was yeah. so fundamental to the future of the railway as, as it was then. And yeah. as you say, yeah. still kind of going strong 20 odd years later. Yeah. So and really, I was a very, piece. very tiny cog and a very, very, very big wheel and structure and so forth. But the, yeah. I guess it was about making sure that those who were spending billions on the route didn't forget that we were still there day to day running yes. a service for lots and lots of freight and passenger customers and their yes. customers. And that, that was a kind of challenge. And but the Bechtel team were very receptive to that, to be fair to them. And, and mm. a lot of what they did kind of, you know, they, they did try to put our, our kind of needs alongside their own wider objectives. Yeah. Um, so from that, I came up to Scotland um, in 2005. Um, as I said at the start, I, I'm actually from here originally. Yeah. We, we'd moved down to Dorset when I was very young. So this is my first kind of, you know, job in Scotland, as it were. Right. And I came at a point where uh, transport had been devolved to Transport Scotland. Um, they were a new organisation uh, back then. Um, the relationship with First ScotRail wasn't all it needed to be. Mm -hmm. So part of the remit I was given was to try and mend that relationship and form a closer kind of bond with the first ScotRail team. Um, and then obviously in Scotland at that point, still today actually, there's a very positive agenda for rail. So there were lots of projects going on. There was a line, a new line to Lark Hall, or a reopened line to Lark Hall in the year I went there. Uh, we were building a line out to Alloa into the power station at Kincardine. Uh, we were building or rebuilding a route from Glasgow to Edinburgh via Adrian Bathgate. So it was a very, very positive expansionist um, part of the country to be in yeah. uh, with all those new, new reopenings. Uh, the ScotRail relationship was quite difficult. Um, ScotRail had won the franchise the year before I turned up. Um, they'd uh, agreed to some quite demanding targets in terms of train performance, satisfaction and so forth. And Network Rail weren't quite where we needed to be in terms of delivering to those. So we spent a lot of time uh, with my team and the MD then was, was Mary Grant um, yeah. of ScotRail. So mm -hmm. Mary's team and my team spent a lot of time together trying to understand what it was ScotRail needed from Network Rail. But for them also trying to understand the constraints, I call them constraints that Network Rail were under at that point. Yeah. And at that point, Ian Coucher was the uh, NR, uh, I think he was still Deputy CEO at that point. Right. And part of the recovery from RailTrack was to um, put some really, really strong discipline on how Network Rail did things and the processes and the procedures and so forth. And, and they were policed quite rigorously for all the right reasons to bring some control back into the company in terms of cost and process and so forth. But that didn't always uh, come to me with what the talk wanted, particularly in a devolved nation like Scotland. And that led to some quite you know, deep frustration on Mary's part around how we could respond to our needs. Mm -hmm. um, and we took ourselves away uh, after a year or two and, and we came up with something called the Dumbling Accord, um, which kind of set out what it was we were both trying to achieve, um, how we'd behave towards each other and what the outputs of that would be just to kind of draw a line and then yeah, kind of move yeah. forward in a much more collaborative way uh, than we were previously. Um, 
And I think that, that was quite effective over the next few years to the point in 2012, um, we became one of the two pilot routes to be devolved as part of uh, NR's uh, scheme to kind of devolve accountability down to the route. So ourselves and Wessex became devolved. Um, Wessex went down the road with South West Trains as then was. Um, we did a lot of work with ScotRail. Uh, we did some schemes like electrification to pay the canal for a bargain basement sum. Um, right. and, and we did it in kind of a couple of months rather than the usual kind of months and years and so forth. And we did some stuff around uh, joining teams together uh, and just working more efficiently where we could prove a benefit to customers. Um, and, you know, here we are 10 years later and devolution still quite a hot topic and yeah. you know what, what the centre do in network rail what the uh, regions and routes do I don't think it's quite finally you know landed and, and right. there we were 10 years ago 13 years ago yeah. uh, you know trying to do the same back then so it just shows how difficult these uh, the super tagging can be to move yeah um, so after network rail I spent a year on a top franchise bid um, I spent a year in the National Express bid for Scott Rail, which uh, in itself is an education because um, uh, I had no idea on the, the detail, the complexity, the rigour that goes into those franchise bids. Um, we came second. Uh, we lost out to Bellio, as, yeah. as everyone knows. Um, so then went to join Caledonian Sleeper, um, which is part of that, uh, that change had been taken out of Scott Rail. Yeah. Um, set up as, as a standalone business. I went as production safety director. That gave me engineering for the first time in my role. And I think what was interesting there, we went just before Go Live. And what we'd missed totally was that this was not a transfer of a talk. This was a business startup. Yeah. This Completely. was a new business yeah. starting from scratch. Yeah. Um, spent three and a half years there. Uh, it was all about the transition from the old rolling stock, the Mark Twos and Threes, to the Mark Fives that they operate now, um, and trying to set the business up as a standalone entity, um, with Serco obviously providing a lot of that as they were the owning group. Yeah. Um, driving performance, we had a right time performance uh, contract. We, we all had to achieve trains right time, none yeah. of this PPM uh, malarkey. Um, <laughs> and that, that drove some really interesting behaviours. And although sleeper only operate, you know, the four return trains London night, two down, two back, and then the portions in Scotland. It was actually just as complex operationally as ScotRail, who run, you know, we run 2,100 trains a day, because yeah. the way the trains are in portions, they split, they join, have to be the right way around, they go to different places, they have maintenance cycles. It was logistically absolutely fascinating, and trying to keep that together every night with some really, really old rolling stock that was on its last legs yeah. uh, was was absolutely immense. Um, wow. And with some IR issues too because of the condition that we navigated. So uh, yeah, and Sleeper of course is now much more settled with the new stock, and you know they're they're booked every night. Yeah, and, finally, and a whole different kind of passenger experience as well, there isn't it? Because yeah. Because I know that the the passengers are referred to as guests, aren't they? Yeah, they it's are. It's a different yeah, experience yeah. because yeah. you're not just getting on like I would. If yeah. I got on an Avanti West Coast at Preston and I head down to London, I go, I sit in my seat, and then two hours and twelve minutes later, all being well, I land at Euston <laughs> and I get off. Whole yeah. different experience on a sleeper train, isn't it? And I've never actually travelled on one. I've never had the the cause to travel on one. But um, when Ryan Flaherty was was MD there, yeah. he yeah. he gave me a tour. Um, and I was so impressed with the setup and how 
everything was presented in terms of that like little hotel room that you were in with your, yeah. your private facilities absolutely blown away by the standard and how everything had been done but so different in terms of the the service offering absolutely to any yeah. other train and as you say yeah. a business startup yeah. so yeah. fascinating to yeah. be involved in that i'm sure yeah and this whole thing about their guests, not passengers, the customers was interesting too. You can imagine the kind of ridicule that that, that attracted from some some of the more experienced colleagues, you know. Because, yeah. but that it was actually really important because people spend a lot of money to travel in that service, and exactly. they expect more than you know everyone should get a good good service, but they really expected to be yeah. treated as guests yeah. when they're with, with us. And then finally, ScotRail, uh, four and a half years ago, yeah. as Ops Director and then Service Delivery Director. Um, and over that period, uh, we've seen COVID. Um, we've seen the transition to public sector. Um, and we've seen all sorts of uh, change, but also some really positive kind of developments in the network, electrification, more, more services and so forth over that yeah. period. Um, and some IR issues too, of course, like, like the rest of the industry, which thankfully are behind us up here. And in ScotRail, it's a wholly different situation. You know, I've got two two thousand odd staff, over two thousand trains a day. We're one of the biggest operators, and we're spread from Stranartowick and Thurso, Dunbar up to uh, Kylam to uh, Fort William Lake. So, yeah. geographically, logistically, size of the operation, really, really different kind of challenge to sleeper. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I mean, you know, we've spoken before, I've um, lived and worked in, in Scotland, both in Edinburgh and Glasgow, and I absolutely love the country. And some of the people that I follow on Twitter, including Alex, of course, he'll post photographs of the train journeys he's on, and I'm like, oh, my word, this is absolutely lovely, you know doesn't really compare with my bookshore partway into Manchester Piccadilly there's nothing quite so stunning on that route to be absolutely honest but yeah it's just such a beautiful part of the world and and the railway really does reach the communities as well doesn't yeah. it because of the the kind of spread out nature of the geography yeah, um, yeah. and certainly from a from a, an outside perspective David not living and working in Scotland anymore I think that it feels that things are very positive in terms of where the business has come from, where it's going, some of the really innovative things that you're doing up there in terms of passenger offer. Um, I think it's definitely, I love seeing what's happening up there and, and kind of new ways of doing things. So um, so congratulations, because that's been a four and a half years of a real roller coaster ride, hasn't it? <laughs> With one thing and another. So yeah, so yeah. To, the, to, to you and, the, and your whole team, it's been an amazing achievement to kind of get where you've got to. Uh, so long may that continue. And I guess this kind of takes us nicely into the bit where I get my magic wand out. Because um, in order to make, and we kind of, you know, whether you want to focus on Scotland or UK railway wide, if you were able to have three wishes, we'll take all the limitations off and kind of, well, we can't do that because take all the limitations off. What would be your three wishes for the change that you'd want to see to make us fit for the future? I've got hundreds of wishes, Nina. So <laughs> sure it was, uh, was quite a challenge. Yeah. Um, so that the first of the three is for the pace of being able to do things to be quicker, um, because we, you know, even in Scotland, where, where I think you know managing to, to to get things done is a little bit easier than elsewhere, particularly now, yeah. doing things. Often the simple things is taking far too long. 
um, and, and that, that can that can affect customers. So I think there's a lot to learn from during COVID. During COVID, we got very good at reacting really quickly to changing circumstances. So we changed timetables, we changed rosters, we changed plans. We did things to the trains in terms of signage and marking and so forth. We get really good at communicating those changes to the cup to the to the customers, yeah. uh, really swiftly and adeptly. Um, and you know, during COVID, we 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 had something called the Scotland Rail Recovery Task Force, which I chaired, which brought together all the different stakeholders, and then we could take what was happening in the latest set of government guidelines and convert those into real things that changed on the ground really yeah. really quickly. You know, we changed the timetable about 14 times over 18 months, which is unheard of. Um, and we got agreement for things almost within 48 hours in some cases. And I think we've lost that. We've lost a lot of that fleet of footness, a lot of that agility, which we always said at the time, what we need to try to do is capture what we're doing now. Yeah. So as the market changes post-COVID, we can respond much more quickly to the changing customer needs like we've got fewer commuters, yeah. we get more leisure traffic, more tourist traffic, different days of the week are busier, mm. that drives different timetables, that drives different patterns during the day. So how how good are we responding to that to yeah. make sure we can tap into those markets as quickly as possible and make sure that the plan of what we operate um, matches as closely as possible what's changing and what we think the next change is going to be? Yeah. I think we've lost a lot of that agility. Yeah. I'd love to have it back. Why do you, and this might not be an easy answer, David, and, and so if you if you want to move on past it, that's absolutely fine. Have you got a view on why we've lost the agility? Do you know, can you see what's happened that's that's changed? Yeah, I, th there's, I think there's two things, Nina. I think one, during COVID, there, there was a compelling reason to change. So a yeah. set of guidelines around travel, do not travel, key workers, whatever it might have been, required some change yeah so our job was not to argue about whether the change was needed it was to deliver the change yes and we did it and we did yes. it really well in my in my opinion yeah i, I think the other thing that's probably affected us and, and, and it's related i guess one we've now become a public sector company mm. so there's there's a lot more um there's more competition for public funds than there yeah. was for the private sector and public funds are in much greater demand. There's, there's less of them now than there were. So yeah. we have to compete for taxpayers' money to do things in the railway against lots and lots of other uh, potential uses of that money, which yeah. actually the public would probably say are better uses for it. So convincing governments to spend money on railways for even relatively small things has become much more difficult than right. perhaps it was in, this, in the public sector world. Mm. And we're still learning that. We're, what, 18 months into public sector here. We're still learning a way around that whole kind of uh, process and infrastructure to work out how to how to justify, how to demonstrate. And it's generally around the fact that railways actually serve a much greater economic good, connectivity, some of these rural routes or lifelines, than the kind of, you know, the basics of revenue and cost. Yeah. So it's trying to kind of demonstrate that wider benefit that rail can bring. Uh, as opposed to the more traditional business case. Yeah. And I think that as an industry, we need to get better at that. Um, yeah. And this this came out, and I'm giving Nigel's podcast another plug here, but in the in the second one where they discuss the 10 myths of high speed too, and uh, Richard gives us a really beautiful explanation of what benefit cost ratio at BCR actually is and, and where it comes from. 
And, and my reflection on that was very much that as an industry, we really do need to get better at this because, um, you know, I, I can probably overuse a term uh, in conversations where I'll say it's not all about the trains, you know. Mm. It's, it's yes, the train is the thing that yeah. gets us from there to there. But actually, the train, if you like, is the stone that gets dropped in the pond. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the ripple effects that we need to be focusing on in terms of the impact of the train or the railway yeah. in terms no. of the system. So I am absolutely with you on that one. And, no. and I, that, I think that, yeah. That, that resonates, Nina, because it's very easy and real to forget why we exist yeah. and to become totally consumed by the industry, the structure, the process, the procedures and all that and forget that we exist to move people and things around to yeah. meet their needs. And yeah. we, we, we do well to remind ourselves of that much more regularly than we do. I agree. My second wish, if I move on to that, yes. is around public transport more generally. Um, and I just feel that public transport is seen as second best. Mm. And recent government announcements about cars, HS2, all that kind of stuff, have probably done nothing to, 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 to help that perception. But my eldest daughter lives and works in Lyon in France. She's an English teacher there at the university. And she wouldn't it wouldn't even cross her mind to need a car in Lyon because yeah. the public transport system is so good. And it's recognised by all types of politicians uh, that having a, a good quality public transport system is essential and transformational to any city. Um, and I think in, here in Britain, that's not recognised the battle over Edinburgh tram, we, we've got lots and lots of battles going on um, around public transport. So I think public transport being treated with respect it deserves and, and the value it deserves, and it's up to public transport operators to earn that. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't discount that. Yeah. A world where public transport is seen as far more vital to the success of a town, a city, a region, whatever, and all modes, not just rail. Would be yeah. my second wish, yeah. and for it to be less of a political plaything. Absolutely, you know, it will always be because taxpayers yeah. support what we do. But it's two subjects of whims of politicians, maybe currently. Yeah. Um, my third wish, and I've heard other podcast guests say the same, is to try to fight resolve the current uncertainty around the future of our industry. Right. Um, and it's been around for so long. And I guess what I'd like to see is the industry taking a bit more, we're the experts, so what can we offer about our future that looks so obvious um, yeah. in terms of a strategic authority that sort of sets the strategy direction, letting the industry get on with doing what it does well, having a strong customer focus, taking out some of the complexity i think on the matt rice podcast matt spoke about the the, the complexity number of parties and all that that drives yeah. some of the things I've spoken about so just being able to get on and do things quickly and effectively and economically and really deliver what people want from us and just get this kind of we won't bother doing this because we don't know what the future holds <coughs> mentality yeah. away a wee bit yeah so speed up public transport get the respect it deserves and come out of the current uncertainty are my three top picks today. I think they point. are all of them, all of them absolutely spot on, David. I have got heated agreement to all three of those. I'm completely um, with you. Uh, my daughter's living and studying in Amsterdam at the moment. Oh. And she, so I've been out there a couple of times to see her. She is using public transport 
all the time, as well as obviously because it's Amsterdam, she's got a bike. Yeah. But she uh -huh. can take the bike on the tram. And yeah. she, you know, but and there's there's other stuff like cultural stuff that's going on that's absolutely fascinating. She's telling me the other week, she said, You're not allowed to use your phone on the tram. And I said, What right? Is it kind of illegal to use your phone on the tram? She said, Well, no, it's it's just really frowned upon. It's illegal to eat on the on the tram, but you can use your phone, but people really don't like you using your phone because of the noise that it creates they don't want to listen to your call and i thought good heavens they better not ever travel on the west coast then. <laughs> i'm on the train yeah even so, the quiet uh, poetry absolutely <laughs> brilliant three wishes thank you for that and to bring our conversation um to a close my final question for you is in terms of inspiration david when we are we're Anybody in any industry obviously gets up in the morning, goes to work, does their thing. I think we have um, we have an up and down existence in the rail industry. And some days um, we're flying through it and other days it's kind of like could do with a bit of inspiration and motivation um, to, to recharge me and re-energise. Where do you go to get your recharge from? What inspires you? It's a really good question, Nina. Um, I suppose... It goes back to why I, I wanted to join public transport way back at the start, because it makes a difference to people's lives. Yeah. There's nothing more rewarding than looking at a, a, an arrivals board with every train on time and yeah. thinking there's thousands and thousands of people there whose day's been you know, not ruined or made better, because yeah. what we're doing, our vast team, what our vast team is doing, is working really well. And I actually find that really rewarding. Um, you can watch people and, and, you know, when it works well, it works really well and you can see the difference you're making. So uh, that's part of it. Um, it can be very stressful. It can be very challenging in all sorts of ways. Um, and, and things that are not within your own direct control can be frustrating. And there's lots of those around as well as with any industry. Yeah. Uh, so for me, I've always enjoyed cycling. Um, and you know, living in southwest Scotland, there's opportunities to go out and about and, and cycle around Absolutely. for a bit. And yeah, just kind of enjoy a bit of um, a bit of peace and solitude, um, yeah. and and just kind of regroup, as it were. Um, and there's also been some quite inspirational leaders. For me, the biggest thing I think, Nina, is keeping a sense of proportion. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy for day to day stuff to 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 be to grow out of proportion. Yes, I agree. But I think just stepping back, keeping that sense of proportion, bad things pass, you know, mm. things will resolve themselves, so you'll help resolve them. Um, it's always been a bit of a kind of, a bit of a mantra. Yeah. Um, there's things in life that are far more, things in the world that are far more difficult and challenging than the things we have to deal with. And it's easy in the railway just to become so drawn into things that you lose sight of that. So yeah. what we do is important. Some brilliant people do what we do um, and we make a difference to people's lives. And I think remembering that when you need to does kind of pull you out of the kind of, oh, what a day today has been um, yeah. a little bit and kind of raise the sights again. I think those are such wise words in those few <laughs> sentences that you've just given us. Um, I think you've had a really interesting career. I don't think there's anything that you haven't touched or been involved with as you've gone through that career story. Um, I've really loved hearing it, David. I knew bits of it, but I didn't know all of it. And it's been an absolute treat 
kind of being taken along that journey with you. Um, and thank you for sharing those incredibly wise words at the end there. Pleasure, Nina. Um, thank it's you. Been, it's been a joy to see you. Thank you so much for being such a lovely guest. And, um, and thank you so much for sharing your story, David. Pleasure. Thank you. My huge thanks to David. I've been waiting a long time to get him onto the Intuitive Insights podcast. I'm delighted he made was able to make the time to join me and I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Thank you for joining us.